Bible as we sort of come to the Word, please open it up to John chapter 7. I just want to read for you the context of what we're going to be looking at and then go to the, to the Lord in prayer. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. We find this. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee. Is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why do you not bring him? And the officers said, Never has a man spoken this way, the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? Not one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And jump down to chapter 8 and verse 12. And Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with ears that are open to hear, and with eyes that are open to see. For it is our desire to see you in all of your glory displayed for us. For Father, there was a time in our life before we came to faith where we were far away, in which we were living in darkness, in which our eyes were blind. But we know that you are there to raise up those who are bowed down that you love the righteous, that you, you are there to support those in which society doesn't support. 
like the fatherless and the widows. For when we look at you in your glory, we see that you made all, you sustain all, and you give purpose to all. And that is why we come before you this morning. We thank you, Father, and praise your mighty name. When we think, Father, of where we are in this age of the 21st century, we know that you have placed us here for a reason and for a purpose. And you have prepared us to live in an age such as this. For we think of, a, of the persecution that is going on around the world, some of which here we just get a taste of. But there are other brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are going through difficulties upon difficulties. For I think of the Nigerian church. For daily, Father, there's, there are those who are being martyred for their faith. Churches are being burned. And it's hard to even contemplate living in such a, an area as that to where you do not know whether you or your loved ones will even survive at the end of the day. But Father, we know that you are the one who gives strength and comfort. You are the one who removes all fears and all anxiety. And so, Father, that is, that is our confidence that we have in the assurance to know that you will give grace when grace is needed. And, and Father, when we think of our own lives here, everyone has difficulties and trials and hardships in their life. For some, they may have unsaved uh, household members to where their heart just yearns for them to come to faith, but that is in your hands. For when we speak forth the gospel and we live forth the gospel, the Holy Spirit is at work to convict, to, uh, to be there for them to see our lives and to hear the difference between us and the world. And so that is our confidence to know that you are at work. Others, fathers, there are financial hardships and difficulties, and that is in your hands, for you are the one who provides all of that. There could be health issues. There could be a myriad of other things. But we know, Father, that you are the one who is there to take away all fears and all hurts and all anxiety. And so, Father, as we come before you, as we open the pages of your word, we thank you that it is your living revelation that you have given to us. For, Father, you have chosen not to just speak to one person for them to disseminate the words that you say, but you have spoken to men who lived over a 1,500-year period to give us your written word in the exact way in which we have it today. And so, Father, we open these pages to have your Spirit move in our hearts so that we can be changed by what we hear and live in a different way when we leave this place so the world can see the reality of the faith that we proclaim. And so, Father, we ask that your Spirit will move to, con to convict the sinner and to give joy within the believer's heart of a salvation that is rich and abundant and is not just in the distant future, but it began the moment that we placed our faith in Christ. And every day is an adventure. Every day is an opportunity 
for us to live forth you, to learn forth you, and to be one in which our lives are a glory to you. So thank you, Father, in what you are going to accomplish. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting because if you think about your own life or in your children's life, there is one universal truth that sort of stands out. That children are scared of the dark. It doesn't matter which culture you live in. It doesn't matter which area of the country you are. I remember myself. I did not like the dark. My parents asked me to go down in the basement. That's the last thing that I wanted to do. And if you were like me, you sort of, uh, sort of jumped into bed because you never knew what was under the bed that may be grabbing you to pull you under. Or even sleeping that night with your arm hanging off the bed. Well, that didn't last for me because I pulled that baby in because you just don't know. And it's interesting because for some children, they have to sleep with the light being on because it comforts them. And so being in the dark can be a difficult time because you can't see what is going around you. The world lives in darkness, but the world lives in darkness that it enjoys being in. And as we shall see today that the world lives in such darkness to where they are spiritually dead, they're spiritually ignorant, and they enjoy that state. But as we shall see as we look to John chapter 8 and verse 12, our Lord is going to make a statement that is a mighty statement. It's an extraordinary statement. And so we've been, the last time that I spoke here, began a series in which I am going through the great I am statements. There are seven of them. Last time we saw that I am the bread of life. Today we're going to be seeing I am the light of the world. There is I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And I call these great statements because they were profound statements that when our Lord made them, it made an impact to their audience, almost like when you hear someone dragging their nails down a blackboard, the Lord makes a similar kind of statement to where when they hear this, you either rejoice in the fact that he makes his statement or you cringed over the fact of him making this statement. And as we come to the Gospel of John, it was written for people to read it and to believe. It displays that Jesus was God in the flesh from beginning to end. And John constructs his books by giving us seven signs in which Jesus performed and then intertwines these things with the seven great I Am statements. And John chooses these I am statements to show that Jesus was more than just a good teacher, that he was more than just a miracle worker, but that he was a son of God who came to the world for the sins of man. And so when you look at John chapter 8 and verse 12, he makes this uh, outstanding statement. He says, 
in verse 12, then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So as we come for us to understand this statement that he makes, we need to know the full context to help you better understand the, um, uh, the exceptional aspect of that statement. There are five things that I just want to help underscore. First of all, if you look in your Bible, from the last verse of chapter 7, Till um, the end of chapter, um, uh, verse 11 in chapter 8, you'll find in your Bible some brackets. That basically means that that one section was not found in the oldest of manuscripts. Because normally, if you're going to have corruption to, to, to the text, it's going to happen more recent. So if you have some older manuscripts, it's generally thought that um, things were added in probably through some oral tradition and someone chose to um, place it in, that's what we have that one section because it actually breaks the continuity because our Lord is giving a sermon here and he, he, gives, he begins the sermon at the beginning of chapter 7 and he goes all the way through and, and continues it through chapter 8 and so it doesn't fit. And even early church commentators, they don't commentate on those verses until the 12th century. So there's good credence that you just need to know that I'm not going to be mentioning for this sort of format um, those verses. But there's a second aspect about the context you need to know. There is a great festival going on right now as Jesus speaks. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, which was also known as the Feast of Booths. And this feast was more popular than Pentecost and Passover. And God instituted this, this feast because of Israel's 40 years of wanderings in the wilderness. So they wouldn't forget. They wouldn't for, forget um, the humbleness in, in which um, they had to live. But also, they needed to be reminded of how God led them and protected them through the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. God was a visible manifestation for 40 years, day in, day out, to lead them in the wilderness or to park them in the wilderness and to protect them while they were in the wilderness. And so at night, God would provide them the pillar of fire, which would keep them warm. During the day, the the pillar of cloud would keep them cool, but the bright cloud would be there to lead the way. And so it was a symbol of God's presence and protection. And this was an annual celebration which lasted seven days during the month of October. And so the Lord is celebrating uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and he is in Jerusalem, and the nation would be singing uh, songs, playing music, doing sacrifices, during special ceremonies that were held throughout the day. During these seven days, uh, those attending would make temporary shelters made out of branches and foliage to um, help them remember of the hardships that their forefathers had to endure. And so this celebration 
was to focus of God's promise that he would lead them into the Holy Land, be providing for them, protecting them, but also that one day that he would be the literal fulfillment of the pillar of fire and the, um, and the pillar of cloud. So when Jesus makes this, this statement, it's linked to an activity that has been going on. During this time within Jerusalem, four gigantic menorahs standing 75 feet high were lit. And sort of like the, the torch at the Olympics, where the Olympic flames sort of just uh, burns the whole time, this was happening in Jerusalem. And so um, these menorahs, were filled with oil, and they continually were to be burning from day and night. And they lit up the city at night, just shining forth the celebration that the people was, were going through. Thirdly, what you need to know about the context is that Jesus in, is in the midst of great hostility that was going on. For three years now, Jesus has, has been preaching, and... The religious leaders in Jerusalem were hearing these stories about people getting healed, uh, demons getting, um, getting thrown out, and the mighty messages in which he was proclaiming and hostility were on the rise. But now he's in the capital city. He's there in the temple. And um, his objectors are going to interrupt him during his sermon eight times. And so he is there in one of the courtyards of, of the temple. The temple had three courtyards. There was the courtyards of the Gentiles, in which Gentiles can go to see what the Jews were doing. There was the uh, court of the women, where the men and women were to come to give their, their temple offerings and other things would take place. And then there was the inner courtyard, which was only allowed for the priests. So Jesus is here in the courtyard of the women, along with uh, uh, the religious leaders, and things are at the boiling point. Throughout chapter 7, um, they are thinking about killing him. He's already had a death threat placed upon him, and things are getting ready to explode. But throughout this passage, Jesus never backs down. He's, he never shies away from the hostility that gets hurled upon him. And in the midst of this anger, in the midst of the people hearing his message, he makes this extraordinary claim in which he is going to claim, as we shall see in a moment, that he is God in the flesh. The fourth thing that you need to know about the context is that throughout the book of John, he uses the term light. He loves this term. In chapter 1, he introduces it, and we shall see it when we get there, and he uses it throughout the book. It helps uh, knit together a number of different themes. Belief, follow, light, darkness. And John repeats um, these things and more to help underscore Jesus' message. And so you need to know when he brings up light, it's, it's something to where it's a part of the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's also going to be a part of his, his ongoing message. And so, um, fifthly, you need to know the audience that when he makes these claims that he primarily is focusing in on. Because if you look at verse 12 of chapter 8, 
It begins by saying, and Jesus spoke to them. Well, there's a certain group in his audience that the them are. Because if you go to the last power of of uh, chapter 7, it's the religious leaders. If you go to the beginning of part of, of chapter 7, those who are seeking to kill him, it's the religious leaders. And so when he makes his claim, he wants the religious leaders to know exactly what he is saying. And so there are, there are five things that I want to point out from this fantastic statement. Because Jesus makes this statement in its ground-shattering not only is it for to bring those who do not know him to faith, but also for those who have faith. It gives us comfort, assurance. It gives us guidance to know that he is there and he will lead us despite the situation that we can ever find ourselves. Because he makes this statement, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there are five things I just want to underscore to help you um, get a grasp of what is going on. The first of all, this is a statement of divinity that he makes. When he makes this statement, he is saying that he is God. And so when he says, I am He is clearly, first of all, identifying himself with the holy name of God that God gives himself back in Exodus chapter 3. Remember that one story. Moses is there. And Moses sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not getting consumed. And he wants to know what's going on with that bush. And so as he approaches, the angel of the Lord out of the bush tells him, remove your sandals because you are what? You're on holy ground. You're in the presence of God. And so God then speaks to him to tell him to go back to Egypt and to take his people from Egypt and to take them into the promised land. And so Moses asks a question, whom shall I tell the the Jews um, who is sending us? And he says, I am who I am. That is the holy name of God, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Jehovah. The word basically means I am all that there is. It comes from the word to be. I am who I am. The implication of that is that he is the complete self-sufficient one. And when God makes that statement and when Jesus makes the statement, he's not saying I was who I am or I will be who I am. But he says, I am who I am. God is completely and absolutely independent of everything. He is complete in himself. He's self-sufficient, in need of nothing or anyone. He has perfect fellowship with himself, perfect union with himself. He is perfect in every aspect, lacking nothing. And our Lord is going to identify himself with the holy name of God, and he's going to do it continually throughout his ministry, but especially here. And so for the religious leaders, it's going to drive them insane to where they're going to seek to kill him all the more. But his time had not yet come. 
But there's a second aspect about his, this statement that he identifies himself with God. And that is the aspect of light. We can take light for granted, but God has always associated himself with light. You, you find that term being used of God throughout the Old Testament. Let me just read a couple of them for you. It goes back, to uh, first of all, to Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, where it begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then in verse 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God is light. And the first thing that God created was light in order to dispel the darkness. Another situation that sort of stands out for me, going back to, to, to Moses, the ninth plague that Moses, that God did through Moses, was one in which God called darkness to um, engulf the land. So in Exodus chapter 10, God tells Moses to stretch out your hand towards the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. And so Moses, he does that, and there was a thick darkness that covered for the land for three days. And it's interesting because verse 23 says this, And they did not see another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all of the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. I can't imagine for the Egyptians it being pitch dark, and no matter what they did, they were walking in the walls, stubbing their toes, whatever it was, because it was pitch dark for three days. But for the Jews, their candles lit, they were no problem, because God wanted to show them that he turned off the light for Egyptians, but was able to be light for the Hebrews. Even in the Psalms, you, you sort of find this theme. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 27 in verse 1, The Lord is my life and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is our light. He is our salvation. Only God can be light. Even in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 19, which looks forward to the future kingdom, it has this great verse. No longer how the future kingdom is going to be. No longer will you need the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light for your God, your God for your glory. There's no need for the sun. No need for the stars, no need for the moon, because the Lord provides the light. And even when, by the time you get to the New Testament in 1 John 1.5, it says this, that God, God's light. And this is the message we all heard from him. and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So when you get to see this statement that our Lord is going to be making, it is a statement in which he links himself with God. It is a statement that God is absolute holiness. 
without any blemish, without any error. And there's not one bit, not one drop of darkness inside God. He is perfect in all his ways. And so he makes a statement in which he is going to be the light of the world, a statement that only God could make. And when the Jews heard it, it was like, because he, they knew that he was equating himself to God. It's interesting because when you look at uh, verse 12 of chapter 8, we're not given the when. All we are given is it's the last day. It's day seven of the temple. And so we're not given the part of the day. But it could have been, I don't want to read too much into the text, in which the giant menorahs that were burning for the previous seven days were put out, in which he now makes a statement, which could be very dramatic, that... Those lights went out, but I am the light of the world. Could have been. But no matter what or when things had taken place, the statement was dramatic. It was profound. And it rumbled within them on what he was trying to claim. So to understand this aspect of light, it really has two main components. On one hand, there is truth that I am the light of the world. And on the other hand, there's the knowledge of God. And so when Jesus is saying that he is one who brings truth of the light, he also is saying he's the one who brings the knowledge of God to a heart that is spiritually darkened. There's an implication um, here in the contrast that is going on that if you need light, that there is a contrast between darkness. And we're going to see that at the last part of verse 12. And so there, is, there are dark hearts that are out there needing uh, the knowledge of salvation. But Jesus is, is going to liken himself to not only is he the knowledge of salvation, the truth from God, but he, he's also the process of light. He's the process of salvation in which he is going to be bringing about. And so I want you to look at John chapter 1 for, for a moment so you can understand this aspect of light to the opening verses of this gospel in his prologue. It's interesting because John does not begin his, his gospel with a uh, genealogy like Matthew and Luke because God doesn't have a genealogy. But he begins even further back than that. He begins at the beginning. Verse 1 of John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I want you to look at verse 4. And here we go. One of John's themes that he's going to be bringing out. In him was life. That's a theme. And the life was the light of men. This light was the truth of God and the personal knowledge of God and the relationship with God. That he brings this to God so sinful man can understand God, be able to commune with God, and have a relationship with God. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. 
So apart from this light, no one can understand the truth of God, nor have a personal relationship with God. But look at the next part of verse 5. The light is there shining in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. A better translation is the darkness did not overcome it, would be the literal aspect to it. Darkness was not able to overcome or conquer the light. The darkness did not overpower it. And so, and so John is saying that darkness cannot extinguish the light, but light can extinguish the darkness. Interesting, interesting because if you've ever been in a room that's completely pitch dark and you light a single candle, you'd be surprised how much that one candle can light the room. And so all the powers of darkness are there and they cannot over, overcome the light because of, of what the sun is, because he is light. And so John begins the book by saying that the world is in darkness There's no other light except for the one true light. Look at uh, at verse 7, if you would. Um, um, It's going to be talking about John the baptizer. And John the baptizer came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Verse 8, but he's not the light. He came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. That word there in verse 9, true, means the genuine light. Jesus was the genuine, authentic light coming into the world and gives man the ability to have a knowledge of God and can give the ability for a person to come to faith, salvation in God. Because as we know from Romans chapter 1, there's enough understanding about God just by looking at creation that man is without excuse. They should be able to see that God is all-powerful God. Look at creation. Wow, I can't. that's pretty wild. And so man is without excuse. But it's not enough to save. General revelation just gives a man the ability to know that God is there. But Jesus produces a light that shows man how sinful he is. And he is the light to be the Savior. And so Jesus is the light of divine revelation, the knowledge of salvation, because he is the means of salvation itself. And he gives one light. Not only that, look at John chapter 3 for for a moment before we move on. In John chapter 3, It gives us another aspect about this light that Jesus is. Not only is Jesus the light to be the Savior, but he is also the light to be the judge. This is a great section because we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And then it it gets into John 3.18, how um, you have to believe in the Son, but who does not obey the Son does not see life. Oh, that's verse 36. Sorry. I'm jumping ahead. But look at verse 19 for a moment. (laughs) Verse 19 says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 
And so the light comes into the world to show that there is salvation to man, but also it brings about judgment to those who don't believe. And the end of verse 19 gives us a spiritual truth that men love darkness. They love the darkness. They don't love the light because they love the deeds that they do because they are evil. And so Jesus comes into a world of darkness, being pure light from God, being able to um, give man a salvation and the knowledge of their sinfulness and be the actual pathway to salvation, who is flawless and blameless And this one light exposes the things that are in darkness. And so this with this light, to some it brings a saving knowledge, but to others it brings about judgment and condemnation. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it's more than just life. It's also condemnation. There's an old saying that says this, that the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. This light saves some, but it also condemns others. And so this is what the light does. And it brings about a salvation or brings about judgment. But men at the end of verse 19 love darkness. It sort of pictures in my mind, because we lived in California, uh, of how, if you know anything about California, it's full of cockroaches. It's just what it is. And we lived in a place, you know, in the middle of the night, you turn the light on, and lo and behold, the cockroaches just sort of scramble and disappear again. And you think, where are these guys coming from? Well, they're probably coming from the apartment next door where they just sprayed, and now they're coming in our place. But they hate the light. They flee from the light. And so that is exactly where men are. Christ shines his light in the world and exposes man's sin and how man falls short. And look at verse 20. It, it gives us how corrupt man is. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for the fear of that his deeds will be exposed. That's exactly what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9. He says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so as we share our faith with those around us, we sort of lay the foundation how man falls short because all men are sinners. All, they all think that they've done good in some way. But when we show them Romans 3 and verse 10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That they get to begin to have an understanding that all men fall short. But look at verse 21 of John chapter 3. As we're about to move on, it says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been uh, wrought in God. And so Christ is that light. He can bring salvation, but he can also bring condemnation. And we're going to see that John has already given 
the foundation of this aspect before. Because um, at the beginning of the next chapter, in chapter 9, Jesus is going to heal the blind man, in which his life is in darkness, and he gives him physical sight. But also the point is he gives them spiritual sight too. And so, it, so this light is going to picture a new birth for those who come to him. It's a picture that he came into the world. And this light, it shines unto darkened hearts. But there's a second thing about this statement I want you to know, that this is also a statement of exclusivity. I have sermon outlines that are sitting in my car, and you would have all this printed out, so I'm sorry that they're still in my car. But this is a statement of exclusivity, because Jesus makes a statement that I am the light. We can take this thing very um, insignificantly, but it's a profound statement. He is not saying that I am a light. He's not saying that I am one of many lights. He's not saying that there is some other light somewhere else that someone else may come in to offer. But he is saying that I am the only light. I am the light. I am the sole light. And so when this light shines, it's the light of salvation that is shined unto a darkened heart. Because when Peter preaches one of his first sermons in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, he says that there is... Salvation in no one else. No one else. You killed the Messiah. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men which we must be saved. And so Jesus is making a distinction between coming to him and every other religion in the world. That they are in darkness, that they have no light, that he is the sole light of the world. It's a profound statement. It's, it's such a profound statement even today in the 21st century because it's so, again, so counterculture. Because we're, Jesus can't be the only way because everyone's sincere in what they do. But as we are going to see, especially in the other I am statements, that's a profound statement. There isn't multiple ways to the Father. There's only one, and it's only through the light. So much so that um, in verse 45, the temple guards, after being sent to arrest him, come back to religious leaders, and in verse 47... Um, well, the, the temple guards were asked in verse 45, I thought you were going to arrest him. And, um, and um, they said, well, he's speaking so powerful. He's so author- authoritative. We couldn't arrest him. And verse 47 is sort of comical. It, it's almost like, have you been bamboozled by him too? You know, I can see the hoi polloi. You know, the, the, the other people around them. But have you also been a, led astray, have you? Do you see one of us well, believing in him? No, no, no it's, it's not one of us. And so it's a statement of exclusivity. It, under, it underscores the fact that even though you're religious... Because the religious leaders of Israel, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were there. The high priest, they was there. Jesus is going to tell them, you're in a darkness. 
You, you don't know me at all. But thirdly, in the time that, that we have, it's a statement of inclusivity. Jesus makes a statement that is inclusive. He said, I am the light of the world. There is hope. When Pentecost came, there was hope for the Gentiles because Gentiles can now come to faith. I am the light of the world. And Jesus is is saying that he just wasn't one of the lights, but this light is made available not just to the nation of Israel, but to the Gentile world. Not just those in the Old Testament, but those in the New Testament. Not just for a certain period of time, but for no matter what time a person lives. He is the light of the world, the nations, the Gentiles. So it was always coming by faith that it would be reckoned to one as righteousness. He is the light of the world. By him making this one statement, it identifies him as being the fulfillment of Messiah. If you would at this time, um, you, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 42. We have one of, Isaiah 42 contains one of the four servant songs, a messianic song that's in the midst of Isaiah. And we have this about the future Messiah and one of the aspects in which he is going to be. In Isaiah 42 in verse 6, we have this statement. I am the Lord. I have called you. That's going to be the Messiah. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will point you as a covenant to the people. Now look at that last part of verse 6. As a light to the nations. Marvelous statement. Christ is made available to anyone who were to turn to him. That if they were to turn to him by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, to anyone at all times, he is there. And so sad because it seems like the day in which we live in gets darker and darker and more decadent and worse every day. But the light still shines. People can still come to faith. And as the world goes darker, light, as we shall see by by we get to the end, grows brighter and brighter. And as our life shines for Christ, they can see the reality of the faith that we have, the difference our faith has from all the faiths of the world. And we, too, can call them, no matter where they are in the world, to that light. Fourthly, when our Lord makes a statement, it's a statement of invitation. He says, I am the light of the world. In the next part of the verse, he who follows me. It's not enough just to know about this light, but he says that one must be a follower of that light. That word there, follow, means that there is someone who precedes you. It means that you're following behind someone else. This is a term that Jesus used throughout the Gospels. It's his number one call, his invitation call for the sinner to turn to him. As we read this morning with, uh, with some of the uh, disciples, 
They were fishermen, and he calls them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets and go. Matthew, the tax collector, he's there collecting taxes, and he says, follow me. And he gets up, leaves everything behind, and he goes follow, to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is synonymous to believing in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. To come to Jesus is to follow Jesus. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? Four things I just want to help you understand this. First of all, it means to be identified with Jesus. To follow Jesus, you're following after him. When our Lord died, the disciples thought <laughs> we're next in line. Why? Because they were followers of Jesus. They, they, they knew that they were next in line to be killed. To be a follower of, of Jesus, it means to be like Jesus. That's why when a new believer gets, bap, get, gets baptized, we, the baptism um, is more than just a ceremony that we do. It's an outward identification with Jesus of the inward reality that had taken place. We, we are identifying to all those around us that we are followers of Christ, that we're identified with Christ. If you remember in Acts chapter 16 and verse 26, says this about the early church, that they were first called Christians in Antioch. They didn't call themselves Christians. The culture did. Why? Because they were followers. They were identified with this dead Messiah. It was a term of mockery. It was an insult. And the early church embraced it. I'm a follower of Jesus. Yeah. Because to the Romans, to be a follower of a, of a dead person who didn't accomplish anything, that was, that was terrible. It was the lowest of the low. Why would you want to follow him? But to be a believer, we follow after Christ. And when you follow after Christ, your life will never be the same again. Your life is changed. But if your life hasn't been changed, you're not a follower of Jesus. And you need to turn to the light. Secondly, it also means submission to Jesus. If you follow after Jesus, you submit to a new master. No longer are you enslaved to sin and enslaved to the old master, Romans 6, but you have a brand new master to follow. You've been set free from your bonds. In Mark chapter 10, there's the rich young ruler. He goes to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? For most, for most people, we would say, amen, you're in the kingdom. Believe and come on. But our Lord doesn't say that because his God was money. And, and um, he says, well, you do the, the commandments, but there's one thing you lack. I want you to go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. But it says this about the rich young ruler. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus says, your God is your money. Follow me. Give up everything that is in the way between you and me. And he could not do it because he was not ready to submit to a new master. 
Thirdly, it also involves repentance. It's turning from your sin and turning to Christ. The disciples experienced this on a number of occasions. But in Luke chapter 8, um, Simon's there with, with um, some other fishermen, and they've been fishing all night. They caught nothing. Jesus is there teaching, and he tells Simon, throw your nets over. And he goes, oh, we've been, we, we've been, there's nothing. We've been fishing all night. But he said, all right, I'll go ahead and do it. And when he does it, it and, um, he gets a great, they get a great quantity of fish. The nets begin to break. And he tells the Lord, because the boat's beginning to sink, there were so many fish, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He sees his sin in the, in the midst of holiness. And he tells him, do not fear, but from now on, you will be catching men. And they brought their boats to land, left everything, and followed him. And so they repented of, of, of their sin and they turned to Christ. And so to follow Jesus means to be obedient to Jesus, is to have a life of obedience. But yet, fourthly, there's one last thing what it means to follow Jesus, is to be decisively committed to him. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That follow there and also in, in our verse is in the present tense. Don't follow me in the past. Follow me now in the present now I see why you go wireless. Now you're in, you're, you're, you're in the presence. It's not sometime in the future. It is today. And then our Lord says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. When you come to follow Jesus, there's a new allegiance. Life has new purpose. Life has a brand new direction. You get a deeper relationship with God. But we must follow him daily. It's not just a one-day thing. But lastly, in a few moments that we have left, fifthly, I am the light of the world is a statement of illumination. A statement of illumination. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Before a person comes to faith, they're lost. Life doesn't have purpose. They're in darkness. Their life may be completely overflowing with shame and guilt. They may be trying to find everything under the sun, but never finding it and just, find, just seeing how much life is filled with vanity. No longer will you walk in darkness when you follow the light. But the contrast, you will have the light of life. No longer will you be spiritually ignorant and defiant towards God, but you will have a relationship with God that will give you new life because of what the light 
gives. Spiritual life, eternal life, and an abundant life. And so for those who have walked through the narrow gate where few tend to enter, the path is narrow. But what path are you on this morning? Is your path a wide path? Because there, that path is very broad and, you're, and you go through the wide gates. But you cannot walk through a, a narrow gate and be on a broad path because the broad path leads to destruction. But when the Lord gives a person new life, they're freed. Look at one other verse for, for a moment. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. We have this verse. Uh, verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. We were rescued. We were set free from that domain. That domain was dark. It was lost. And he has set us free by transforming us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Not just into another kingdom, but into a kingdom of where his son is at. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says that you are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. This life gives, gives spiritual life. This life gives you an empowered life. It gives you the knowledge of God, a personal relationship with God. It gives you the ability to worship God and your worship to be accepted by him. Without this light, you live in darkness. You're enslaved to sin. Your taskmaster is a harsh taskmaster. Your yoke is a heavy, toilsome yoke. Death has a stronghold over you. You have no place to turn, but when you come to the light... You live in the light. You're citizens of a new kingdom. You've been set free. You have a new master who is loving and kind. You are now spiritually alive and no longer dead. You are instruments of righteousness. The old self is crucified with him, and behold, all is new. You've been made alive to God. So now we can take our burdens boldly before the throne and to know that we are heard and to know that the God of all creation hears us and works through us. And with the hope, the blessed hope, that one day we will see our beloved Savior who we've never met and see him face to face. What a glorious day that will be. But it starts the moment that you come to the light. I like two 
My favorite hymn is And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. I love two of the verses that are, that are sung. It says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head, enclosed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And can it be that I should... Uh, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So where are you this morning? Are you one who has turned to the light? Are you are one that our Lord makes this statement, and it's a profound statement because you know that your life is in darkness? You can turn to the light and be set free. And our Lord, with open arms, will forgive of your sin. When you see your sin and you see your hopelessness and you come and you turn to him because he died for your sins, he rose again, and he, he is now ascended to the Father. That's part of what Palm Sunday is this morning, is all about. His triumphal entry. But one day he is coming back. And how that's going to be pale in, um, in likeness. And so are you following the light? Because there's always one here who's always put on a good show. But you know who you are. I don't know. I'm just a new guy. I, I, I barely figure out people's names. They're on my phone and I got to look at it. But, but you know who you are. Do you have the confidence to know that if the Lord would take you home today, that you can actively say that I will be with him? Because if you don't, one of the men with the name tags in the back, they will open up the word and will show you uh, how you can have the confidence to know. Come talk to me. I don't have a name tag, but I wear one every day. Um, that's okay. Secondly, for those who do walk in the light, we are to shine our light in the world. Our Lord makes a fantastic statement, and this is the last verse in Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world, meaning you are the reflection of his light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does any, anyone light a lamp and, and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. We're to share the light. We're to live the light. And may our lives shine forth the glories of Christ so that then they may be able to see the difference in how we worship the Christ rather than how the world tries to worship the Christ. Father, so much more could be said 
But what a profound statement. Because to the Jews, it was one to where he was drawing a line in the sand. He was etching his name in the rock that he was God in the flesh. Father, if there's someone here who doesn't know know you, convict their hearts of their sin. Let them see the hope that Christ brings. But also, secondly, Father, let us be ones in which if we know you, that have us live and shine our light in the world. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.